ADH-TV, I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation. My producer is Charlie Noble. And our guest today is a leading silk, Geoffrey Phillips, who's a King's Council, or rather a senior council, as they're called in New South Wales. He's prominent silk, and he's a long-standing and loyal, active supporter of the Crown. Welcome, Geoffrey. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, very nice to be here and, and, and to talk to you. And good to have you. And you've flown especially, have you not, from France to be with us today? Well, um, unfortunately, I was there for the uh, the Rugby World Cup and followed the Wallabies around with great dismay. But, um, you know, uh, 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 all they're hoping upon now is, the, is is to stay within the competition is, is Fiji being beaten by Portugal, which... Um, I think it's probably about as much, much prospects as the voice uh, being successful. <laughs> so I don't think you'll, uh, Australia will be participating any further in, in, in this Rugby World Cup. You were a prominent rugby player at Sydney University, were you not? Were you, you in your team you had some uh, eminent politicians? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't say I was prominent. I, I was uh, in, at Sydney University Rugby Club and I did play with Tony Abbott and... Um, uh, and a, a few you know, years behind me, of course, in the few, uh, 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 Joe Hockey played for that club. Uh, there's, there, it's, it's been a, it's, it's a wonderful, it's the oldest rugby club in Australia, and um, uh, and I had, I still have uh, great connections with the club and, and great memories of my playing days so many years ago. Jeff, you've been a very loyal supporter of the Crown, and you played a significant role. I remember in the referendum, the Republic referendum. In fact, I remember on one occasion where we were on the same side in a debate at uh, the University of New South Wales against Malcolm Turnbull, who arrived rather grandly with his group. Uh, do you remember that occasion? I do remember that occasion because I, 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 I've known Malcolm for a long time. We, we started Arts Law uh, together in first year in 1973, and I've, I've had a long connection with Malcolm, and um, um, yeah, and that was a, a, a fairly fiery debate, a very f full um, uh, auditorium at the John Clancy Auditorium, and um, and Malcolm uh, was very unhappy with me uh, at, at the end of the evening. He called me a scoundrel, and uh, so I said, "Well, that, that could be high praise, Malcolm. Thank you very much." <laughs> Did, I, must, I must have I must have struck uh, struck a note. I remember you offering when when. Uh when they arrived, you offered your hand to him. You went to shake hands. Yeah. Well, um, we didn't just, uh, do it so much that night, but um, we, we have such, you know, shaken hands subsequently. <laughs> Very all good. Is, all is forgiven. Well, uh, we, have a, we have a constitutional program from the present government at the present time. And as uh, at the time that uh, we're recording this, we're still uh, waiting for the, uh, the final vote on The Voice, and the government has indicated that um, if this succeeds in the next term, they will be introducing a second referendum on the Republic. Just what do you think about that proposal to have another referendum on the Republic? Um. I, well, I think people uh, will be you know, heartily sick of referendum by the time this one finishes, um, and I, I just don't think that it's, it's that, you know that that um, we wish is going to take place because I, I, I you know I think as, the, the way the voice is going, uh, I don't think it's going to be successful, and for all and, and for many reasons which have, have been outlined in uh, the press and, and by others. But one thing I do notice, the difference between the voice referendum debate and the Republic referendum debate was that the two sides uh, generally had, you know, like you mentioned earlier, that, that debate at the University of New South Wales with Malcolm Turnbull and us, that doesn't seem to have happened this time around. As I understand, the, the voice, the yes case, do not wish to... Um, do battle, as it were, in, in the, the, the in, in the the arena of ideas in 
in meetings like at the University of New South Wales or elsewhere, like it happened in the Republic debate. I remember uh, being in a debate one night at the Paddington Town Hall against Wendy Machen, who was uh, supporting the Republic, and I was against it. But it was uh, many hundreds of people were at that um, at that meeting. That that has not taken place, and I understand because the, the the yes case in the voice doesn't want to actually give the no case a platform, which I think is so silly because uh, you need to you know have a debate, share your ideas, counter the other side's argument, and, and that works both ways. And I think that uh, that is something been singly lacking uh, in, in this um, uh, referendum campaign. Australians for Constitutional Monarchy didn't take a position on this referendum, on the substance of this referendum, arguing or saying that it was beyond its remit. But uh, we did object to the process and firstly, we thought it should have gone to a convention, but in particular, the government, particularly at the beginning, seemed to be ready to interfere with the process in Australia, which has developed over a long period. And the, the Yes No booklet, for example, was introduced by a Labor government, has proved very effective. And they were going to dispense with the Yes No booklet then uh, they decided to give uh, tax deductibility to the yes case and delayed significantly giving tax deductibility to the no case. Now, tax deductibility to the yes case proved to be an enormous advantage to the yes case because of the emergence of company directors who were in a significant way prepared to give financial advantage but only to the yes case. Uh, and this meant that uh, the taxpayers were subsidising, in many ways, the because of tax foregone, they were subsidising the yes case. This seemed to be a strange way to proceed in relation to running a referendum. Look, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, and I think that p people can see there's not a level playing field. And as, and with not a level playing field, they say, well, this is, appears to be being forced down people's throats. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm in Sydney and I just walk around the streets here and the uh, the City of Sydney Council uh, as uh, placards and, and bunting and banners is all out there supporting the S case. It, it's almost as if it's, it's, it's um, um, you know, a state-sponsored matter because I mean the city of Sydney Council is a is an arm of government and I just don't think it's a it's a, a role for government whether it be you know, state federal or, or whatever to be put, putting money into one side of a debate which is really a matter for the people and I think that it's um, this is where I think the the yes case has done themselves a great disservice in that I think people feel it's being pushed down their throat and they and and when you start having this unholy alliance of big sport, big business, big unions, big government, all supporting it. Um, I think you will find that um, uh, perhaps a little bit like the Brexit debate, um, uh, the people uh, don't want to be pushed around by these large organisations of state. It, it, it almost uh, has a, a feeling as if uh, we're in a controlled economy or in a, in a controlled state where we, we must do as we're, we're told. And, and and I think people get their backs up with that sort of stuff. And I think that's why... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the yes case appears to be failing and, and not uh, producing the wave of support which is done. But but I also take the view that you know, Father Frank Brennan, who said he's going to vote yes, had a great cr uh, critique recently as to what uh, the government and you know the Albanese government in relation to this referendum has done wrongly uh, in that it hasn't had those mechanisms which were had in the Republic uh, uh, debate of a convention, uh, talk, you know, trying to reach a bipartisan approach and they, they just and they, I think this is a question of they felt about a year ago they they, they were on a, a big thing and they're going to win win uh, handsomely but it's um, I think that their tactics um, have, have proved to be uh, uh, faulty you might remember uh, during the convention the Republic convention uh, they didn't manage to get a more than 50% support for the Malcolm Turnbull Republic. They got a majority, it was a majority of the votes, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, an absolute majority. And the terms of reference for the convention was, to, was for the convention to approve by an absolute majority a model. Uh, John Howard went to close the convention and uh, 
the, those who favoured the Turnbull model were very, very glum because they thought they hadn't got anywhere. But John Howard then said, oh, it would be ridiculous not to put it. It, it did get a majority. It wasn't, uh, it was a plurality, but it was in fact a, a majority and uh, it would be silly not to put it to the people. He got a standing ovation for that. But when the Republicans lost, they then accused Howard of uh, losing it for them. They said he rigged the convention. He uh, rigged, he, he got the convention to choose the model and uh, he rigged the question, all of which was completely untrue. But that line was repeated uh, regularly in the press. This government has really got away with a lot in running this, uh, this referendum and has been treated quite softly by the media, I think. Well, I agree with you. I mean, when you um, uh, particularly listen to um, SBS, um, ABC, uh, Channel 9, um, they, they've given the government on this referendum a rails run. Um, there's, there's no a, a, a attempt to um, uh, have real uh, debate. Uh, occasionally people are involved from the no case on, on, the, on the ABC, but the, the other stations appear to be um, hell-bent on pushing this. And, and, and as I said, People feel that it's being pushed down their throats and that's, I think, become uh, one of the major problems against this and the fact that, you know, um, no attempt to compromise um, the issue um, you know, is extraordinary. And the fact is it is, it is a, 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 a more significant change to our constitution uh, than uh, replacing the Governor-General with a President. Um, this is, this in, in, in entails a completely new chapter uh, 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 that is uh, under the Constitution, a, a, a chapter not un, unlike the other chapters which relate to um, the legislature and the courts and the like, and, um, and, 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 and the voice itself, they say, is, uh, can make representations, but in my view it will, it will have real power because the High Court will give it uh, power in, in challenges because it will have to be properly funded in order to do what uh, it's set out to, to be able to do under the proposed change to the constitution, and so and it will it, it in itself uh, be a very significant body. At, at, at the very least, one could describe it as a bully pulpit. Um, that is, uh, its representations will have great force because um, the way in which um, uh, they will be made and and, uh, and pursued. And I think that. Uh, and, and that was one of the reasons why I was against an elected president, because even though they were saying an elected president under the Republican model um, would uh, have the same powers as a governor general, the, the powers of a governor general um, are in accordance with, um, you know, uh, uh, um, the, the precedent and how it applied acro across um, uh, the continent, you know, the, across the, uh, the, 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 you know, the Commonwealth dominions, as it were, and I, I remember that you know, the Dr. Everett book, you know, the, the Crown and its and, and uh, his, his dominion, dominion governments. Mm. Exactly, and um, whereas a, a, an elected president would not be so restrained, an elected president would say, "Well, um, I've been elected by the whole nation, and, and I speak on behalf of the whole nation, whereas you only speak as prime minister on behalf of your party." And that may change because your party can vote you out. Whereas, if an elected president had a fixed five-year term, um, that, that that would um, you know, suggest that they would be able to, as I said, using that bully pulpit, you know, do quite a lot. And I think the voice is exactly the, in the same position. Uh, it would it would be uh, a way of pushing around government, and of course, its um, terms of reference as to what it can uh, make representations on. Is in, in my view is unlimited, and, and I think Professor Megan uh, Davis has said said the same herself, that um, uh, uh, everything affects Abor you know, Aboriginal people. Therefore, we can talk on anything, make representations about anything, and and it, and it would not be so restricted. Now, uh, as uh, you probably realise, the Australian Republican movement is the Republican arm of the Australian Labor Party. The same people uh, seem to be involved in it, particularly at national conferences. They have a, another body which has a similar name at national conferences, and they've produced a model republic, which apparently is going to be the one that they will put if the voice gets up. Now, that, uh, that republic is a peculiar form of republic because the president will have almost no reserve powers. The president won't be able to be a check and balance 
on the Prime Minister and the other politicians, particularly on the Prime Minister, but to satisfy those Republicans who want an elected president. You might remember in, uh, in the last referendum, the Republicans who wanted to elect the president, uh, many of them voted no in the convention and uh, they were forced into or encouraged into an understanding with us as part of the people voting no, they weren't as significant as is sometimes suggested in terms of the percentage of the no vote. But the, this model will not only be a model of a president without any reserved powers or virtually no reserved powers, but also the politicians will choose the candidate. The candidates will be chosen by the politicians for the elections. The federal parliament will choose some, state and territory parliaments and legislatures will choose others. So it'll be very much like those, uh, those guided democracies where the candidates are chosen by the politicians. Does that model, do you think that model would be attractive to Australian people? Look, I don't think so. It, it reminds me of a, of a joke I heard uh, David Frost uh, say many years ago. He said that uh, apparently next year in Greece there's going to be a general election. Um, the only problem is we just don't know which particular generals will be elected. <laughs> and, and I think that, uh, that, that, that has all, all the hallmarks of, a, of, guided, of what's called guided democracy uh, that... Uh, you know, uh, and I think that that's, uh, I, I don't think that will wash. That, you know, that, I think people will see through that for, for what it is on the basis that, once again, uh, being told what, what, the, what to believe and what to do and how to vote. Now, when the, uh, getting back to the voice, when the, the vote no, yes, no paper came out and we saw what the terms of the legislation were, the bill for the referendum and how this would be essentially to make representations, the young producer of this program, Charlie Noble, who's not a law student, said that that would be the one, the one part which would give particular problems if it were enacted. And that, uh, I think, is the view of many lawyers, making representations. What does it mean? And uh, we've seen the problems with that. And uh, Ian Callanan, who was probably the, the most federalist of all High Court judges, since I think the first High Court bench said it will be productive of an enormous amount of litigation. But I was uh, surprised to read in the Australian an opinion piece by Robert French, the 12th Chief Justice of Australia, in which he says, as an advisory body, there is little or no scope for successful litigation associated with its work. There's little or no scope for successful litigation associated with its work. This was after the federal court had just handed down a decision whereby some offshore development had been stopped, miles away from Australia, been stopped because they hadn't uh, consulted with a traditional owner who had a particular view about the, uh, the whales and uh, offshore developments. and. Uh, There'd been other, there've been other federal court decisions stopping developments because of the lack of listening to representations by traditional owners. Yet the Mr. French, the former Chief Justice, says there's little or no scope for successful litigation. Do you think he that is a, a sound view? Look, I have to say with respect to um, uh, uh, former Justice uh, Chief Justice French, I don't agree with him. Um, uh, my, my area of, of expertise is industrial relations, and oftentimes you'll find in uh, awards or enterprise agreements a need uh, for the employer to consult with the unions in relation to um, change which may affect the workforce. And um, uh, you know, a lot of litigation uh, in, in the industrial relations world goes on this particular question is um, whether consultation uh, has taken place and, and what consultation should have taken place before any change can be done. And, and of course, that, that's precisely the same matter here, that if, 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 if there's a, large, a body under the Constitution which has the right to make representations 
and uh, it feels its representations haven't been uh, listened to, uh, that will that will be productive of litigation. And it's not so much litigation in the High Court, it will be litigation uh, in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or, or the Federal Court, uh, particularly when these representations can be made about um, decisions of executive government. I mean, that was the, the sticking point, uh, which nearly... Uh, was uh, removed uh, until the, the federal government was told by the, um, the voice working group, uh, you leave that in, otherwise there'll be trouble. And that was, that, was, that was, I think, the first example of the voice acting as a bully pulpit and the government uh, went running uh, when they said, we're not going to take it out. And I, and I think that representations in relation to the executive government decisions, that is, you know, with the public service and, and you know, those matters made in relation to delegated legislation. That's going to be where the area of real litigation is going to be, and it's also the area where uh, the voice will need to be to need to be funded in order to have sufficient um, uh, uh, public servants working within the voice to keep track of what the executive government's doing in relation to whether those decisions of a delegated nature made by executive government touch upon matters upon which the voice wishes to make representations. Now, I think what we're going to have here, we're going to have almost a, a, a shadow bureaucracy uh, keeping an eye um, on, um, uh, on on the executive government as well as as well as the government of the day. Uh, and I think that's where um, the litigation will be, and that's where an enormous amount of funding will have to be given to it because it's no point uh, just having a voice without being being funded. It'll have to be funded by um, the Commonwealth government. And it had to be funded to a great degree in order to, to, for it to be able to say, well, um, we need to uh, monitor what decisions have been made by executive government. That is, uh, we almost need to second guess what the bureaucracy is doing. And, and um, that in itself is, is going to be a significant impost upon the Commonwealth. So there will be a parallel bureaucracy, most likely, monitoring what the Commonwealth is doing. Exactly. I mean, uh, and 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 why that will happen is that um, it, it the being the voice being a separate chapter under the constitution, uh, it needs to be properly funded in order to do its task. In the same way, um, it, you know, with with the courts, uh, if the courts are in the constitution, we say, well, okay, we've appointed judges, but we're not going to give you any money. Um, well, th that would be that would be contrary to the constitution because the courts need to be need to be able to function properly and need to be properly funded. In the same way that you, know, you can have um, other aspects where if there's a, a, a responsibility under the Constitution to do it, it needs to be properly funded and the voice will need to be properly funded. And that's where, that's where you will end up having, in my view, um, a, a, a shadow bureaucracy, given, uh, keeping an eye on what's going on. Given that it will be a new chapter, the first new chapter in the Constitution and therefore be prominent in the structure of the Constitution, which is relevant to High Court interpretation. Uh, what do you say to the argument which has been advanced that whatever the voice recommends, whatever representation the voice makes, will give the Commonwealth jurisdiction in that area? And one example that uh, comes to mind is the recent, all that's been, been not, not really recent, but it came forward again recently, the argument that in relation to the trial of an Indigenous person on a criminal, alleged criminal offence, that in relation to that trial, the jury should consist of, wholly or in part, Indigenous members of that jury. Now, that, I assume, would be a matter for state legislation to take effect. But if the argument is, if the voice came up with that sort of recommendation, that itself would give a power to the Commonwealth to legislate in that area without consulting the states. What do you think of that argument? Well, it's feasible, but ultimately, the voice itself will need to um, uh, make can at least confine its representations to, into matters which are purely Commonwealth. But I think um, since uh, the Boilermakers case, uh, the engineers case rather, that we've, we've seen that you know, f f uh, 
um, you know, federal power uh, is is, uh, uh, is swept through state power, you know, f- you know, based upon matters like you know, international treaties and the, and the like. And, and perhaps if the representation is made by the voice under its own chapter, well, then you suddenly it, it, that that may well happen. But as I said, this is this is an area which um, will have to be left to another day in order to determine whether it um, it, it passes muster in, uh, in a court. But there has been over the, uh, the, the the last hundred years a, a, a push towards more federal power than, at, at, the, at the expense of the states. But that that, that in itself, a composition of juries, um, that, that seems to be a, a complete overreach. We seem it really, to, really yes. is a state matter. Of all the federations, we seem to be one which particularly has developed a very strong centre, which I don't think was intended in the terms of the Constitution, but which has occurred. For example, for example, I, I think uh, ours is the only federation where 80% of the taxes, about 80% of the taxes, goes to the centre, then they allocate it on condition to the states. This doesn't occur in any other federation. It would astound them in other federations, the amount of the tax revenue which is accumulated in the centre. We've had a long tradition since, you rightly say, the engineer's case, which is about 20 years after federation, of the High Court bending over backwards, I think, in terms of building up the central power of the Commonwealth over the states. And uh, this would suggest that there might be some currency in an argument that the voice itself could be the subject of further expansion of federal power. I must say this. um, um, My biggest criticism of John Howard uh, as Prime Minister was work choices, Uh, not so much because uh, it ultimately led to his demise, but what it did, uh, it gave... uh, uh, the industrial relations uh, you know, a centralised focus, in, in, whereas in the past it, uh, yeah, it was it was more spread amongst the states, and um, uh, it was perhaps. You know, I, I wrote an article in the Australian at the time before work, the work choices legislation was passed, and I described him as um, uh, you know, John Howard on this issue was wrong, and he was as big a bigger centralist as um, as uh, as Gough Whitlam, and I I described him as son of Gough. Uh, in that um, the, the, the centralisation of the industrial relations power, um, in my view, uh, uh, was it was a mistake, and ultimately it led to his demise. And which, which you know, um, and and the, 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 um, and and the state industrial relations commissions, particularly the New South Wales one, were very respected bodies, and um, they, they've since those times have, have, have withered on the vine. And of course, having a, a nationalised industrial relations system is not. In my view, is not good for competition yes. yeah, because competition between the states economically uh, is not a bad thing. One of the aspects of COVID, which was noticed in the media, was the re-emergence of the states as significant sources of power. I think uh, that was a, a misinterpretation of what happened. What really happened was that Mr. Morrison decided to underwrite the states financially. He didn't have to, but he underwrote them and accepted their decision. So Daniel Andrews having the longest lockdown in the world, apparently, was he was only able to do that because it was underwritten by the central government, which I I think was a it was an error of judgment by the Morrison government to give such an underwriting to the states because it uh, it it exacerbated the the deconstitutionalism of the states in that uh, we had uh, we had laws being made regulations but re- having complete legal effect being made uh, with a very curious process so much so for example in new south wales when the berejiklian government closed down the construction industry for 2 weeks the medical officer said, well, I didn't recommend that. So where it came from, we have no idea, but it was certainly done, done with a very curious procedure, which certainly is not consistent with good constitutional practice, I would have thought. Yes. Look, I mean, um, uh, there's a lot lot yet to be written about um, our responses to COVID. Uh, perhaps the initial re- reactions were, 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 you know, we, we didn't know what we were dealing with, but... 
uh, they say COVID is still very much a, 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 about in the community, but um, it's, it's largely ignored now. Well, and, the, and, um, you, you're so right. And, and in the list of matters of a constitutional nature which is on the agenda, one was that the Commonwealth, or rather the, the, the present government indicated in opposition that they would be establishing a, a, something like a royal commission. They didn't precisely say royal commission, though this was mentioned on a number of occasions, uh, that they would be looking very closely at what happened under COVID, what they've... And that, that was important because of the constitutional breakdown during COVID when all manner of things was done without, most people would think, proper process on reflection. Uh, what we've got is a, an inquiry which is obviously going to protect the state Labour premiers, most of them are Labour now, and which will uh, criticise the previous Liberal government. It doesn't seem to be a real inquiry. And there is a need there to ensure that in a future crisis like this, that the, all of the authorities behave in a proper constitutional way. Yeah. One of the most curious things that happened to me during the COVID pandemic was uh, I, I did catch COVID at one stage and I was at home at, uh, isolating for seven days. Um, I could get Uber Eats to deliver um, uh, material uh, you know, goods from the supermarket. I could get Uber Eats to deliver uh, food. I could get Uber Eats to deliver alcohol. But I couldn't get the, the, the newspapers delivered because uh, I rang up the news agent and he said, oh, you've got to go through the publisher and it's and look, uh, it'll take weeks. And so I eventually got the papers delivered by uh, the Uber Eats to the local bottle shop uh, in that I called the daily newspapers a bottle of Chardonnay and uh, he was happy with that. So um, I, I could order the bottle of Chardonnay. He went next door to the... Um, uh, the, 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 the news agent got the newspapers and, and, and it was delivered as a bottle of Chardonnay. Um, <laughs> as a bottle of Chardonnay. How amusing. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy crazy days. and it's, uh, I suppose it'll be a little bit like... Um, uh, I, uh, I remember Professor David Armstrong uh, when I was at City University told a story of... Um, uh, an old Bolshevik was asked, what was it like being you know, in part of the revolution? He said, have you ever been uh, in, a, in a committee meeting for seven years? And and I think that no doubt uh, <laughs> with, with people to come, they'll say, what was it like during the pandemic? And uh, I said, well, I'll, you know, um, I, I couldn't get the newspapers delivered you know, during isolation. <laughs> well, uh, one, one of the... Uh one of the curious features of the, uh, the voice has been the statement by the Electoral Commission that if somebody go votes in a number of places in their electorate, that uh, they won't be able to find the votes and uh, declare them invalid or somehow check on where the votes are and, uh, and uh, not have them not counted. And I thought everybody knew this because that's the way the system seems to be designed. It's not the Electoral Commission that designed the system, it was designed by the Hawke government. Until the Hawke government, you had to vote in your subdivision within an electorate where you were probably known. You couldn't vote in other polling stations, but to make it easier to vote, as the Hawke government said, you can now vote anywhere in your electorate. In my electorate, there are about 40 places. And when I go in to vote, I merely have to state my name and it's ruled off on a roll which is not linked electronically with the other rolls, so they're not aware of what happens. So I was yesterday walking past the, uh, the Icebergs Club at Bondi and I noticed they had, a, they had a, a notice out in the street saying, welcome, welcome, all you need to come into the club is your membership card, photo identity, passport or a driving licence. So I took a photo of that because I thought, well, that's better than when I have to go to vote because I don't have to show anything when I vote. Do you, do you find that rather yeah. strange that when you vote, you don't have to prove that you are, in fact, who you are or who you claim to be? It doesn't make sense. It just does not make sense. Mm -hmm. Although, um, 
in my earlier career before I came to the bar, I was a trade union official. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a great expression in those days, vote early, vote often. <laughs> and, and I think that, um, that that may be the, the, the case here and you know, where uh, that, that happens. And, and I just think, and, and you know, anywhere else where, where you go, you're asked to show your ID. I can't see why you shouldn't be asked to show your ID uh, when you go and vote. And mm. I think that's it. It's a simple matter, and all you need to do is show your driver's license or your, or um, you know, your passport or or your Medicare card or, or, or the like, and, and and that should be proof enough. In most uh, countries of the OECD, which is the the top group of Western democracies and other democracies, in most countries uh, there is a system of somehow checking on the integrity of your claim that you are of who you are. Australia seems to be particularly open in this regard and where we're also open is in that week between the the calling of the election and the closing of the rolls because they're inundated with a, a very large number of uh, registrations and there's no way they could possibly check on those registrations. So large numbers of people are uh, put onto the rolls, and some of them may well be fraudulent. They probably are. This seems to me to be a particular weakness in our electoral system, not so much in relation to referendums, but particularly in relation to elections. Look, I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah, my, my recollection was the trade union movement uh, were, was subject to enormous electoral fraud uh, in terms of its uh, union elections, uh, and and that got cleaned up um, uh, by by a whole range of different uh, aspects, um, and, um, and and uh, union elections were overturned by court cases because they were able to prove uh, that um, there were sufficient numbers uh, which which could be fraudulent or uh, uh, ballots which could have affected the election, and of course they're the sort of things which if it can be you know, if the union movement can be cleaned up in relation to its electoral process, I can't see. Uh, and and, and uh, if I can use a Latin expression, R forty or I, the Commonwealth and the states uh, should clean their act up to make sure that um, you don't have these allegations, which uh, um, well, we're, unfortunately we've seen uh, in the last U.S. presidential election of, of voter fraud, and I, I think because otherwise the whole um, the, the whole system can come to, into disrepute. Well, John Howard uh, tried to fix up the the inundation of new registrations, enormous number come in and they can't be checked. It's impossible to check them. They don't have the time to do it and uh, nor the facilities do it. But uh, he passed legislation which required that the rolls close on the day the election is called. So that week wasn't available to those who wish to put in uh, fraudulent uh, registrations. There are, of course, genuine cases of people who suddenly realise they've only got a week to register or register a change of address. But I think it was in 2010, uh, the Get Up group uh, started a, a legal action about this, about the closing of the rolls, and uh, the High Court bent over backwards to hear the case. It was brought by two people one who hadn't bothered to register, one who hadn't bothered to tell the Electoral Commission of their change of address, it went to the High Court. The High Court very quickly heard the case and gave a decision finding that it was unconstitutional for the Parliament to decide that uh, the rolls could, uh, could no longer stay open until, until one week after the calling of the election. Where that's in the Constitution, I cannot find. Uh, they didn't get hand down, they didn't publish their decision. It was published just before Christmas. The actual de decision or the, the ruling was handed down in, I think, August. The decision wasn't published until just before Christmas and we realised then it was a 4-3 decision, a very narrow decision. But it seemed to me to be rather a strange way for the High Court to rule, but it shows the power of the High Court in relation to interpreting all manner of things. 
Well, a, f- a friend of mine who's a, uh, a very famous uh, constitutional uh, appellate lawyer um, said to me, that's why you've got to be so careful with the words which go into the Constitution. He said, because some high court judges find words which aren't even there. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and that, that's, a, that's a problem. So that's why um, I'm very protective of putting anything into the Constitution, uh, which uh, is, it can be open to uh, interpretation like this voice, the, um, uh, the, the interpretation as to what these words can mean uh, under this new chapter. Um, it's not so much, you know, uh, two years' time, ten years' time, it's, it's 50 years' time because once it's in the Constitution, it's there forever. It's very uh, because the, the whole process of getting in the constitution is so hard to get it out. It would be even harder. One of the interviews that uh, it will be at uh, the conference on the coming Monday, that's the 9th of uh, October, was uh, with uh, John Howard. And John Howard, uh, I asked John Howard in terms of changes the constitution to the future, what changes should there be? And I asked him whether he thought that the power to initiate referendums should be extended to, say, two states. So in addition to the Commonwealth, two states acting together could initiate a referendum. Because I think it's a very narrow source of changing the constitution that we only allow the federal politicians to do this so that the only changes they make or they propose are ones favouring the Commonwealth or increasing the powers of the Commonwealth. Do you think that uh, when we're looking at the Constitution, we should be considering whether the power to initiate referendums should be extended, say, to two of the states, say, to, as the South Australian Premier proposed before Federation, be extended to also the people by petition, as in Switzerland? Um, I, I think that uh, where the states really should be con- uh, con- consulted under the constitution is in relation to the appointment of high court judges, uh, because uh, that's where the real constitutional change has happened since federation. It hasn't happened uh, through the, the very few referendum which have been passed. Uh, it's it's happened in the high court. And, uh, and I think because the Commonwealth government appoints uh, high court judges, um, the, it, it tends to favour those judges who, who it perceives to, to support the centralised power. And I think that you, you, you may well recall when Ian Callanan was appointed, it was because um, uh, uh, Tim Fisher centred, uh, made, made the, the very real comment that he wanted a capital C Conservative appointed uh, in order to uh, counter uh, you know, the centralisation of power. And of course, Ian Callanan was, uh, had proved himself to be one of the uh, one of the, the best high court judges we've had, you know, you, you know, together with you know Sir Harry Gibbs and 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 Sir Owen and um, uh, and Sir Owen Dixon. And uh, it mustn't be thought that uh, Ian Callanan voted in favour of the or, or made decisions in favour of the government. I think in the work choice case, if I recall correctly, he and Michael Kirby dissented against John Howard's. They, they opposed, they found that John Howard's proposed work choices were unconstitutional. Uh, the majority found them to be constitutional, but I think that uh, for federalist reasons, Ian Callanan joined with uh, Michael Kirby to dissent and to say that they weren't constitutional. Yeah, uh, perhaps the most extraordinary of unity ticket of all time. <laughs> you know. Yes, they, they no doubt had good reason. Now, Michael Kirby is a good constitutional monarchist, is he not? Yes, he and so is Ian Callanan. And Ian Callanan is an interesting thing. It means, it, it, I suppose it uh, confirms the non-political nature of the Crown. Yes, indeed, indeed. And, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, when you look at the, uh, the, the two dissenting judges in the work choices case, they did it for different reasons. Uh, and I, oh, and yes. I think that... Um, and 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 that that that's that was that, that's the beauty of the system having um, d- diverse reasons like that. I've I've I was critical. I've been critical of the Keyful High Court in that um, uh, she as Chief Justice uh, wanted to have a, a collegiate approach that is joint judgments all the times and and I, and I and all the time and I and, I, and that it tended to happen and I, and, it, and I think it's a great shame in that you, you don't 
really see the law developing because the, um, the, the law develops through good dissenters uh, rather than uh, dragooning um, uh, other colleagues on the on the High Court to uh, join in a joint judgment. One one really doesn't get a flavour of, of where of where judges are, are perhaps sitting or where, where they where they're going to, and I think that and that's a shame. Yes, a joint judgment must uh, involve compromises and you're suppressing some aspect of uh, why you're supporting the decision. Uh, I, I agree with you. It's better to have uh, uh, judgments which are separate, uh, including those that support the decision so that we see wh what their reasons were, which might be completely different from the other yep. members of the majority. And I think when you go back through some of the great... Um, uh, judgments uh, in the High Court, it is because uh, it is one particular judge setting uh, 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 out a principle and, and some judges can do it far better than, than others and I think an individual judge can do it far better than when there's a joint, uh, 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 you know, when, when the, the, the court speaks as a whole because the, 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 when the court speaks as a whole, that is the, the end result of basically a committee and, and you really don't uh, that is the you know, the the camel is a committee designed by, you know, is a, is a horse designed by a committee. Yes, and 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 that's the problem. I remember I was involved in one which was uh, Longy and the ABC, where they it was like those um, those films which you used to see as a child of the wagons all being joined, all forming a circle to defend. The, those who were assaulting outside, and uh, it was obvious when they decided uh, or gave a decision in relation to uh, freedom of political communication that they've all compromised and worked out a joint position which was acceptable to each one of them. I, I, I agree with you. I think that c coming back to the voice, uh, one, of the, one of the great criticisms of the voice is that it is race-based. I was surprised on the ABC to find uh, the compare and uh, uh, one of the leading members of the Pro Voice group, uh, Mr. Pearson, coming together and saying that uh, uh, Aboriginality had nothing to do with race. That is a completely separate thing from race. D does that argument in any way impress you? Um. I, I, I listened to that interview, and uh, I was astounded by it. Uh, it, uh, it, 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 it. I think that um, Noel Pearson, unfortunately, sometimes um, sp speaks with the gravitas of, a, of, a, of an Old Testament prophet, uh, <laughs> and I think sometimes he just makes it up as he goes along. And uh, and I, I felt that to be to be um, not very compelling uh, at all. And I, I just don't think that. Um, he really made made too many friends, mind you. Um, you know, and I don't understand why he needs to wear an Akubra hat uh, in the studio, uh, uh, having an interview like that. It almost looks like a stage prop, a little bit like Manning Clark's, um, <laughs> you know, broad brimmed hat, or, or uh, you know, Peter Fitzsimons bandana. Uh, I don't think it adds to the argument, but but it does uh, give you that Kath and Kim look at me, look at me approach. <laughs> uh, and I think that um, uh, it. it, it uh, um, it, it starts looking like a sideshow, you know, when people start getting uh, dressed up uh, like that uh, to um, make a point. And, uh, and I, I think in some regards he, he may put the Akubra hat company back 10, 20 years. It is uh, going backwards, isn't it, surely, for legal rights to be determined by race, and in particular race which is so poorly classified in that... Uh, we, we, ob we see people who are spurious, Indigenous people. They're clearly not Indigenous and they're claiming to be Indigenous and other Indigenous are saying they're not Indigenous. And then there are people with a mere soupçon of Aboriginal blood who are exploiting this to the maximum. This seems to me to... First of all, I think it's against principle to have legal matters determined by race in a democracy, and secondly, if we must have race, they're not doing it very well. Look, I just think it's a, it, 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 it flies in the heart of everything about the Enlightenment, about uh, the equality of man and, and women, you know, that uh, we are all equal and, and we shouldn't be judged by 
um, things such uh, uh, such as race. It, it is. It's, it appears to be to be a retrograde step, and and I think just uh, Senator Jacinda Price says that uh, has said this so eloquently. We are we are all Australians, and we should be treated as as Australians. And whether you've been here, uh, I think she said sixty thousand years or six months. If you if if you're an Australian, you you should, you know, it, it doesn't matter when you when you came here. What if uh, now uh, another group said, well, we've been here for two hundred years. We should be treated differently again. I just don't think it, 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 it cuts any ice. That, that sort of temporal connection doesn't, in my view, cut any ice at all in that we're all, all Australians now in 2023 and we all should be treated equally. And, that's, and I think that's the point. This is where um, the uh, introducing a, a race um, into the Constitution um, um, seems to me to be a, a retrograde step and, and, and against the principles of, 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 of uh, liberal democracy, which established over the last couple of hundred years. One of the things which amused me slightly was when Newspoll told us uh, the difference in support of the voice between those who speak English at home and those who speak a foreign language at home. It seemed that those who speak a foreign language at home supported the voice much more than those who spoke English at home. And I thought, well, that's, that's rather amusing because a lot of those people who don't speak English at home came to Australia from dictatorships. And the last thing they'd be telling uh, a pollster is how they would vote in a coming referendum because they'd come from countries where you don't tell anybody in advance, particularly anybody in any sort of quasi-official position, how you're going to vote. And I thought that was a, an interesting piece of information, but probably not reflective of how they will in fact vote. Yeah, look, I, I think um, no voters are, are far more uh, circumspect in their preference than, than yes voters. Are. Yeah, you, see, you see walking around the seats, you know, streets, uh, people wearing ST search as a fashion uh, uh, accessory. Uh, the same thing happened in the Republic debate. Um, and I recall handing out no votes at the Bondi Public School and I thought we were getting trounced there uh, during the Republican campaign. I thought we were lucky to get 10% of the vote because of the reaction I was getting from people uh, coming in. And, and, and whereas the, uh, the, the, the pro-Republicans were, were flamboyant, loud and, and, and very um, open in, in their preference. As it turned out, um, and that was a very big booth, about 5,000 people there at the Bondi Public School, um, the uh, during the during the scrutiny, uh, the the the, uh, the, the pro Republicans just all, all went off to their party, expecting great success. I, I, I hung around and, and and just looked at the, the voting, and suddenly we were getting about 38, 40 percent of the vote. And uh, because um, I think people just very quietly went in there, uh, voted no, and left. And and, and I didn't see a, 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 a I didn't see an, a, a, other than the ACM T-shirt I was wearing. I didn't see one all day. Well, that that's, uh, that was amusing. Uh, Jeff, uh, unfortunately, uh, time has caught up with us and uh, I'll have to draw the proceedings to a close. But I must thank you very much for your wisdom and uh, for setting aside the time, indeed from, for flying from the French Republic to Australia purely to be on this programme. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Jeff, and I hope you will come back again and appear on oh, this platform. Thank you. My pleasure, David, and all the best. Okay, Thank you take care. Have a, have a great have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. This is Cheers. ADH TV. I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. Thank you very much. Until next time.